Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast, featuring tech legend Jake Gunkelman. He's the man who has read well over half a million brain scans, and Dr. Marie Swingle, author of iMinds. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. The NeuroNoodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you. A lot of kids are starting school now, yeah. and there's a... Uh, a certain amount of anxiety. I wasn't anxious. I just didn't want to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, parents are going through it. Kids are going through it. I thought it would be interesting, you know, how, how to deal with it other than uh, kicking them in the hindquarters. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can just start talking, you know, where we left off last week, you know, uh, the, the term anxiety has become a big, big, scary term. You know, but a little bit of functional anxiety, that nervousness, that excitement about the first day of school. You know, when when you're an adolescent, it's about what shoes you wear. You know, when you're a kid, it's about who's new in the class. You know, but there's also, hey, is that bully that was there last year going to be here this year? Um, am I going to do well? Am I going to make friends? You know, all of those looming questions. And I guess it's a matter of how as you know, um, people who work in mental health, parents, educators, help kids to mitigate those emotions, uh, help them to share, you know, share with them how it's completely natural to feel um, expectations and how some of that is, is nervous. Um, and, you know, where and how and why we go right down that anxiety path, that mental illness path. Jay, do you have any comments on that? It's easy to mistake uh, excitement for anxiety. Yeah. You know, they both are increased arousal states, but it, it's how you frame it, it yeah. more than the state that you're in. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that said, it, it takes quite a bit of um, uh, knowledge or teaching to get somebody to understand the reframing. Yeah. Uh, uh, because it's so easy to fall into the trap of, you know, whatever the little heart of flutter is, is anxiety. It, it's normal uh, to, to feel uh, uh, Pete before the game, all excited to, uh, to, to get in and do it, you know. So that, that excitement's easy to mistake for anxiety. Yeah. But there is a problem with anxiety, and, and uh, our uh, healthcare system... <laughs> <laughs> which is the biggest misnomer in the world, you know. Uh, it's not really very systematic and it doesn't promote health very well. So, Well, well I know we uh, talked about anxiety last week, guys, gals, uh, but kind of where I was going with it is you have, in, in the States, you have uh, preschool, you have, you have middle school, then you have high school. Yeah. There's a different level of unforeseen circumstances that, so you know, kids got got to go through. Can you, can you can you guys address like what's going on in each one? Like high school and first grade. I mean, it's two different things. High school, you know, you're a freshman. Well, and, I think and, the little ones. You know, you're talking about if we want to go back to the term anxiety, separation anxiety. Uh, but I, I do want to frame that as um, you know, for I would say certain 
portion of children just based on personality. You don't have to tell any parent that a child is born with a personality. You know, some children are terrified of, of, of leaving the home and going out and being quote unquote independent for many, many hours. And others just race. They don't even say bye. You know, this is the natural range of, of human and human states, traits, personality. Um, but where does the, you know, the mental illness fall into that? Where is a reaction to extreme? And I would say for a three-year-old, there's no such thing as an extreme reaction um, because these are the years where you're figuring all this out. These are the years when um, the personality is starting to blend in with the environment. Uh, and that's where I really believe in um you know, training of parents, whether it's family training, community training, professional and training, innate uh, training, you know, being being one with your child and figuring out, okay, when is this um, a perfectly natural next step in life? Um, and when is it too much? But I mean, to loop back in as we get a little bit older, you know, we, we, we can talk a little bit about um, what's natural and not natural, but we can also stick those electrodes on, right? You know, after a certain age, we can see when the arousal um, starts to flip into a negative arousal. Um, and then we can kind of make some choices as to whether um, we want to coach the environment, whether it's the uh, the parents or the, the, the child with a little bit of counseling, whether we want to get right in on there and train the EG or a combination of both. Uh, my only um, reticence here, and of course, I always get myself in trouble or not, um, is wait on the pills, right? Don't start um, medicating before you have an idea of what's going on in the environment in the brain. And I think we're medicating so, so, so early. Um, I don't know if I've said this on this show, but, you know, a little, let's just pick a four-year-old. Or, or an 18-year-old going to college. They're starting too. Okay, well, well, I don't know. I was going to make a comment on bipolar. You know, when you have a polar, you know, screaming, you know, about something, they drop their ice cream or whatnot, and then just bouncing it into happiness because they see a little puppy. That's not bipolar. That's a child. But uh, yeah, when the, when that those type of mood swings start to happen in adolescence, is is that something we need to look at with the EG, um, or is that hormones? You know, there can be so many causes. Development, <clears throat> the development in the EEG is, I think, very interesting as a, uh, a, a to follow along where you started with separation anxiety as an as an example. Uh, you were talking about three years old. Well, Alan Shore talks about the development of emotion, the primary emotion, uh, right frontal and right amygdala. But at a year, a year and a half, two years, when separation starts to happen, <clears throat> a pathological separation uh, can end up with uh, social emotion in the left left uh, uh, structures, the uh, the amygdala on the left side, the temporal structures on the left side, where shame and guilt, uh, which, which are they're learned emotions. You, you, they're not innate, uh, like uh, uh, fear, uh, um, anxiety, uh, the joy. I mean, the primary emotions. Uh, but these secondary social emotions end up developing on uh, on the left hemisphere. You can end up with enough disturbed genetics that bipolar may be an issue, but it's really strongly genetic. 
Um, there are gigantic beta spindles, frontally and classic bipolar. And you can see them earlier in life, but they haven't started to cycle enough to be diagnosed. There's a lot of, uh, well, <laughs> diagnosis. That's a whole can of worms unto itself. Just set aside the DSM, uh, they're not diagnosed bipolar until they start to cycle. And earlier on, they're usually classified as hyperactive. And propensity to have that kind of a disorder is seen in an EEG early. And you can intervene early to avoid the, the pitfall of starting to cycle. Uh, if you can avoid the super high, you can avoid the collapse into the depths. You, you have to learn fairly early on to control those beta spindles. And they could be massive. You know, a spindling excess beta was described uh, by Gibbs and Gibbs in the early 1930s. But they, one of the nice uh, things is uh, Niedermeyer, unfortunately, he's passed. But his big, thick treatise on EEG, along with Lopes de Silva, clinical electroencephalography, uh, they talk about spindling excess beta. And, and they quote the Gibbs, obviously, as the source, but that um, they, they, they quantify if it's bigger than 20 microvolts of beta spindle, it's abnormally large. And that's easily kindled cortex. Uh, the beta spindles that get really big are the tonic form of tonic-clonic seizure. So these beta spindles can be very, very problematic. And bipolar, that's, that's the classic thing that we do see is uh, beta spindles. And group average is greater on the right frontally. But group average is a terrible way to characterize an individual. And I've seen frontal beta skewed to the left in somebody who's grossly bipolar just as easily. So you got to take into account that, uh, that that group average has, you have to look at the variability within the group to understand that you can have some outliers on the left side. It's still the same presentation. The, Jay, the, how, how young would you recommend we start to have a look? Because I, I always fight in terms of, you know, kind of let it be, let's not pathologize this little person. Oh, we don't have to pathologize. Um, uh, and and what, 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 what kind of is your age where you, you recommend that, that we really have a look? Like, when, is, is there a perfect time? Is there a, we're going to miss it if we don't get on it? Of course, we're playing with the epigenetic notion here as well. But, if, you know, for our, our listeners um, out there. About about the time that they're interested in cartoons on television and they can track a storyline, they're, they're capable of doing the kind of feedback that, that's just generic. And their EEG can guide uh, a lot of just routine. Um, you know, you don't have to pathologize it, but if you set up a whack-a-mole game for kids, um, that, that, that's a CPT task. Uh, how, how, how many commission errors where they whack where there wasn't something? How many omission errors where they missed something that they could have whacked? Um, and, uh, and what's their reaction time? You can have finger tapping and finger tapping and get laterality. There's all sorts of games that you can do that end up guiding people. If you're, if you're slow on the tap, you can go and play this game over here, which ends up fostering motor development. Uh, if you're really bad with omissions and commissions, you can go do that brain game and learn how to control uh, theta and alpha and beta. And 
um, at, at that point, uh, you haven't diagnosed anything, but you've avoided the problems of later life ADD by getting rid of the frontal central theta or the frontal alpha excess. You've, you've fostered better uh, affective control and you've intervened with them fairly early. Uh, and again, this is set up basically as gaming and that if you're really good at this game, you don't have to do that. But if you want, you can. I mean, it, uh, you set up a game room for the kids and uh, uh, preschool, kindergarten era, uh, you, you can start to actually uh, uh, separate out some people that end up having to have their EEGs looked at a little bit more completely. And uh, those are going to be, be identifiable based on the outlier patterns. You know, the, uh, the people that are looking at the uh, simple EEG data uh, can kick out somebody for a more complete scan. The incidence of unexpected epileptiform discharges in kids is tremendous. In autism, 60% or more of the, the autism have epileptiform content in the EEG. If you stabilize that, they really, really, really improve. If you don't can, stabilize can you that. there a little bit? This is one of the things that I've been kind of wondering about, just yip-yapping with my colleagues about. Um, we know that the prevalence of autism has just escalated incredibly over the past 20 years. We also know, as you said, the, the association of eleptiform and autism. Um, do you have any thoughts or theory in terms of uh, the, not necessarily the increase in, in autism per se, but the increase in eleptiform in, in all of us uh, as, a, as, a, as a, uh, a race, so to speak, or are we just only capable of seeing it now? So how typical is- We're only now doing the testing. You know, if, if you look at classical EEG, 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, literally EEGs weren't collected. If EEGs was for epilepsy and encephalopathies of some, you know, altered consciousness of some sort. But autism wasn't an EEG thing, and neither was ADD, neither was depression. Um, you know, all, all of those kinds of things didn't get EEGs, which is right now one of the issues. Uh, they, they like AI to replace psychiatry, but they don't have the data to train the AI because they didn't collect the data on uh, all these kinds of things. They have epilepsy covered. They have gross encephalopathies covered. Uh, degenerative dementia is covered, but you know that uh, that doesn't really characterize the breadth of psychiatry. So they, they their their uh, their hope that AI would kind of solve the DSM was a pipe dream, you know. Um, and they actually asked an AI uh, what it would take for AI to be able to read EEG clinically uh, and neuropsychiatrically. And the AI basically gave this answer is going to take about four years. It's going to take a team of experts in EEG and experts in, in AI and experts in uh, programming and, and uh, um, all of these working together. And, and 
access to the data representing the general population. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and how much data? Oh, at least 500,000 or more. Yeah. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> you know, uh, I put 500,000 under my belt before I thought I had some clue what was going on, you know, so, yeah. um, uh, but you know, it, it, it will happen, but it's going to take a long time. This is not the, you know, the, I've got the AI algorithm, you know, where's the data set? You know, they don't have the data set. Uh, in fact, uh, Emmett Gait Gaitkin, the head of the AI project out of Stanford, uh, spun off into private, but he started out at Stanford. And uh, um, uh, he, he came and said, you know, we, we were all excited. We had 37,000 EEGs already digitized and available. And uh, I said, oh, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> all epilepsy and encephalopathy said, yeah, I know. <laughs> so uh, he wanted access to, you know, he heard I have lots and lots and lots of data, which I have. Um, and I said, I'm sorry, it's not mine uh, to give to you. And it belongs to my clients and their patients. And um, that's, you know, there's no way I can give you access to that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I introduced him to a couple of my big customers uh, to see whether they were interested in you know, uh, having uh, them go through and get permission from the clients to have the data used, but that I don't know how that turned out. You know, that's that's all contractual access to data and gives you access to the uh, outcomes and stuff. Yeah, I was going to say we're at a really interesting crossroads. I think. I mean, we all know, um, you know, data in or garbage in, garbage out. The saying in data, and I'd say like now a lot of individuals are contributing to the body of work, you know, the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the cold cat cues. Um, but you know, here comes Dr. Mariana soapbox, but you know, the, the, the way the data is cleaned. Um, and this is where I, I really, really speak to AI versus AI, which is my, you know, my newest catchphrase of artificial intelligence versus assisted intelligence. Um, and I think we're, we have to be really, really cautious about where this massive data set is going to come from um, and who's managing it, who's artifacting, who's cleaning it. Getting back, getting back yes, to first day of school, we, we've recommended EEGs for, for athletes that are very serious about their craft. Well, what about students that are very serious? When do you think parents should get an EEG for, for their child, their adolescent their teenager you know going to college not to get it diagnosed but just to have it as a backup to archive in case something comes up would you would you treat a student the same way or, you would or alternatively as a base recording guide you for what might optimize them in the short run yeah. the database is very very young uh the 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 breadth of how wide the variability is that's still considered within the norm is so broad that's essentially pretty well useless. Um, but about age six, seven, uh, the norms all kind of congealed together. The developmental variability has kind of stabilized. So at about seven, eight years old, uh, six, seven, eight years old, somewhere in that range, you could get an EEG 
the normative comparison would be fairly stable, uh, and and it could tell you, uh, you know, uh, frontal alpha hypercoherence, maybe uh, some affective regulatory stuff you could deal with now before it's a big problem. Uh, oh, there's frontal central thetas, dopamine deficiency in the striatum. Uh, you could use methylphenidate, or you could learn neurofeedback. You know that. Uh, um, give them the, the, the options for how to optimize or uh, deal with the phenotype that they end up with. The, it, the phenotype is, is like the hand you're dealt in poker. You know, it, 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 um, they're, they're genetically uh, linked. Uh, and you might have a couple of different phenotypes, uh, you know, combined. But there's, there's a way to play every hand. You know, and and a way to optimize your outcome if you're given one of these hands. So, I, I debate this one all the time. And I, if I can just go back historically in terms of how I got into, um, you know, the, the the clinical component, I started as an educator, and I was actually working in accelerated learning. So, and my, you know, before I, I merged with Dr. Swingle Senior, I had my own practice called Peak Learning. Um, and I switched over to clinical, yes, because I was fascinated by it, but also because of the um, uh, the clientele that I was working with. Um, accelerated learning for kids is fantastic, um, but I, I think we can kind of also pull this in with, with athletics in terms of what's too much, too young, how good is good enough. And if we loop back right into, you know, anxiety, um, you have a, a, a whole, um, you know, spectrum of, of, of parents who really, really from the best, pure space in their hearts, uh, want their children to really, really uh, not just succeed, but excel. But there's this push mechanism. So sure, you might have a little too much slow wave activity and we can sharpen you up to, to, to have you perform better. But when does it become too much? And when do we become part of the problem? You know, how much, what, what's the fine line uh, between super sharp and an anxious mess? Um, and that's where, again, I, I went back to school and I started studying the clinical, as I said, because I thought that we could do much, much more good in that. And in fact, there's a danger in the harm of too much wanting to make super people and making people super, super yes. unhappy. There's uh, there's a big contribution from uh, Judith Lubar, bless her heart, she's passed. Yeah. Uh, and, and it was that if you're working on a kid for ADD or anything else, you should have family therapy going yeah. because the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And, you know, you, you can have an obsessive parent uh, pushing a, a, a kid and, you know, you've got to deal with that dynamic. Uh, that would be the strange attractor that would make them bad uh, back into their old uh, pathological ways yeah. uh, without an intervention. So the, you know, I, um, it's good to get started looking at the EEG again when it stabilizes six, seven, eight years old. It's a good time to start. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you can optimize. Yeah. Uh, and again, uh, family dynamics being what they are, you may end up finding yourself needing to bring in a little family therapy on some of the cases. 
Uh, but optimizing is not that difficult. And once kids learn uh, the additional control, it's a skill set that they have. And they get better at it with time, even with no further feedback. And they've shown that very nicely out of data, you know, a 10-year follow-up. Uh, six months, 12 month follow up, uh, um, where uh, from pre to post, there's a certain amount of gain, uh, but it consolidates further with use. It, it, again, it's a skill that you've learned, and if you use it, uh, you, you develop it further. So, you know, the EEG training ends up having uh, uh, unexpected spin off of um, uh, the, the knowledge of self control. Uh, um, the locus of control is where it's right here, you know, um, and, and uh, that, that's um, when you know that you have control over that, um, it, it, it's empowering in a way that you don't get from a lot of other things. I, I, it, it's um, across kinds of therapy in neurofeedback that the people that learn control over the brain end up having uh, a self-control, self self-regulatory self uh, perspective, I think, that's been altered in, um, in a good way. You're making such an investment of time early on, and the kid is setting a foundation for future learning, and you have an impedance there. I would think you'd want to know what what kind of clay you have to work with before you start shaping it. Because if, if there's some dis, disability, uh, dysregulation, whatever you want to call it, yeah. you know, knowing that it's six, seven years old is better than yelling at your kid for not understanding or going through all yeah. these problems. And then the teenage years, you know, kick in. I, I can't believe they don't ask this to be done with it. They make a kid do a physical, right? A student. You know, to go in. I, I don't know why they want to say, hey, oh, wow. Well, that part is easy, Pete. That part is yeah. really easy. And, I, and nobody's going to disagree with that. It, it's the the other side that we have to be a little bit, you know, cautious of in terms of, you know, what are you training out and why are you training out? I mean, the, the classic is drive. OK, you know, the same region of the brain, the same measures um, you know, can turn into obsession or can turn into drive. You know, this is where I talk a lot about direction versus correction and how, what, like, what is the ideal age? You know, if we go into young, are we going to be taking away that drive? Or if we go in at the exact same age, we're, we're, it's an absolute blessing because we're really helping the person out. So I think that's where every single one of us has to really have our own thinking caps on. <laughs> well, the, well, those people that have their own thinking caps on eight or nine out of 10, they're saying they have ADD. That's my point. That's my yeah, point. So, so, these kids, so if you have an EEG, you can education. weed that out, can't you? Yeah. And uh, ADD is, is not one thing. Um, ADD, ADHD is not one thing. Uh, um, Dr. Kropotoff <laughs> uh, uh, basically suggests you, you know, a hyperactive kid comes to your door and uh, they could have this presentation, that presentation, the other presentation. So uh, uh, they could have frontal theta, they could have frontal beta, they could have frontal alpha, uh, they could have epileptiform discharges, which about a quarter, maybe a third of ADD and HD kids have epileptiform discharges with no seizures. 
and are undiagnosed because EEG hasn't been looked at. Um, and the thing is, if it's an epileptiform discharge, it doesn't mean that uh, it, it can't be treated. I mean, my, my work with intractable epileptics who are having hundreds of seizures a day, out of control, meds don't work, they're being proposed for brain surgery to cut out uh, a spot. Well, epilepsy is a network problem. You can't cut out a freaking network. So their, their success rates are not so hot. Uh, they have an approximate 50% success with the brain surgery that where, where they took out a big chunk of the temporal, lobe, temporal lobectomy. Now that they go for a little lumpectomy in the temporal lobe, um, th their success rates drop down some. But they do offer to go back in and take another lump, you know. Um, but you, know, you can't cut out a network. But you can train a network. Yeah. And uh, we've taken intractable epileptics and train them so that they don't have seizure discharges anymore. They have a clean EEG and they're asymptomatic and they're off of meds for many years and their their brains being optimized. Um, Isabella was a case we just published with her uh, permission, with her name in it. And um, uh, she's presented uh, at a meeting about her uh, outcome. Uh, she's seizure-free now for seven years, and she just uh, graduated with honors at Baylor with a, a, a tennis scholarship, full-ride tennis scholarship. Um, uh, so, you know, from being unable to do self-care uh, to being a Division I uh, ranked tennis player. Uh, and. Uh, uh, little Maggie, uh, uh, who had a video shot about her, and the parents are uh, open about her case and identifying her and everything. Uh, Maggie just had another, you know, routine EG. The doctor hasn't come back in routinely. I mean, she had intractable epilepsy, and she got they just did a clinical EG with 24 hours, with everything all wrapped on, and uh, the, and they said perfect. This is a perfect EG. So, which uh, I, I've never seen a perfect EG. There's usually some artifact here and there and stuff, but nevertheless, perfect meaning no epileptiform discharges, I would agree. And she learned how to stop having them. And, and uh, people were uh, kind of trying to congratulate me for the work. And I said, no, 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 Maggie did all the work. Uh, if there's something that didn't happen right, that's my fault. But if there's success, the client did all the work. You know, this this is the uh, computer feedback and the client. This is not me ratcheting on something. Um, you know, I, uh, uh, this is basically a client in in relationship to themselves through the computer feedback, learning how to control themselves. Uh, uh, who came with a with a manual? You know, I mean, uh, this is learning how to control yourself in a way that most people think is not possible. Ask the neurologist, is it possible for people to control their brain activity? <laughs> Good luck. Well, the yeah. change is coming and, from a bottle, isn't it? Like, it, let's take a junior high school student that's got to take a placement test to decide, you know, what college you're going to go to. And then they get into the college. It's easier to get Adderall in college than it is Tylenol, right? So... <laughs> 
and, and Tylenol will kill you. You know, um, in the 80s. Oh, yeah. Drink, drinking and Tylenol together uh, will kill your liver. And, uh, and you yeah, know, students don't. They're, they're going to be drinking and having a headache yeah. and taking the Tylenol. So, well, my um, point is before they get to that point, because they feel the pressure and then the parents are getting the Adderall. Before they get to that point, there's something you can do with neurofeedback that let's just call it digital Adderall. What would that be? Uh, well, uh, frontally, you need to inhibit any of the slower content like theta or alpha. And you, if there's beta there already, you leave it and you suppress any muscle. But if there's not beta there, you need to train it. And that would be frontal. And you also need to make sure that they're able to be stable. Excitation and inhibition have to balance. So you may have to balance SMR with frontal activation. Uh, uh, physical stabilization and, and executive control needs to be activated. Yeah, the frontal beta st stimulation that's trained is essentially turning on the salience network, which turns off the default no mode network resting state and turns on the executive network, which is what you need to have active during learning. So uh, it, it, you, you teach them to flip-flop between uh, stabilize physical and engage neurocognitive. And uh, that, that control can be trained fairly readily. Uh, if you don't have complications like a learning disability or uh, autism or uh, epilepsy or something like that, if, if it's ADD, attention control that you're looking for, uh, 30, 40 sessions is usually going to be adequate to gain the bulk of the control you need assuming regular motivation and you know, the, the routine attendance and uh, proper intention. That's not that the client is being forced to come in and they're oppositional or something, you know, but a, a normal uh, ADD kid can learn in 30, 40 sessions how to have really optimal attentional skill sets and uh, laser focus and then uh, relax. And uh, that, that that control over arousal vigilance ends up being uh, uh, something that neurofeedback has been doing effectively for decades. Uh, the the offers and uh, did the C4PZ SMR and C3FC beta, and uh, Lubar at the same time without cues did CZ SMR and FC beta. Uh, now they know if you got beta already endogenously up front, you don't train it up, but you do suppression up front. Uh, the, the, the core ability to train the ADD out of somebody and give them optimal cognitive function it, it has been around for quite a long time. It's been optimized now with the use of QEG uh, to end up identifying aberrant patterns that aren't just frontal midline and central. You have temporal findings or um, uh, uh, out of out of norm tuning or something, those things can be identified with quantitative EEG, and it, it adds to the time that it takes to get things straightened out. De more complex things need take a little bit longer time to uh, reform. But the brain is is plastic, and which is a terrible thing to call something nowadays. You know, <laughs> oh, plastic. Oh, is that brain is rubber. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's malleable, it's formable, 
the, the brain that can control and, and form itself, you know, and um, uh, that, Big that seven takes, years old. Uh, yeah. Uh, in fact, that's who's doing it then all by themselves, whether they know how to do it or not, it's another matter. I love working with kids seven and nine. There's just that beautiful malleability, obviously, of the, the instrument, the brain, but also uh, the willingness of the curiosity of the person. But, Jay, if I could just kind of yeah. jump on a comment that you made just, just a, a few sentences back in terms of, you know, how you can... Uh, you know, work with ADD unless there's any LD. Um, one of the things that uh, it just takes longer. It takes longer as all. Yeah, but uh, no, I want to share some you know really good news. Part of a lot of the work that I actually do is in that small little area of you know ADD versus LD, and and how how does a disability come to be? Um, and there's this whole, um, you know, catchment uh, where I say it's missed learning phases. It's not a learning disability. It's essentially the child just didn't have the proper attention to zone in on what were critical foundational uh, components in, in maths and in um um, you know, reading, writing, all, all the, you know, the basic three. Um, and you can go in and target the quote unquote ADD um, with the missed learning phase and bye-bye learning disability. So there's yeah. all kinds of beautiful stuff that can be done there. Yeah. The frontal attention network can end up, you know, uh, focusing on stuff. But uh, the 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 uh, Wernicke's area, giving a, a name, unfortunately, the left temporal parietal junction, uh, where comprehension is at its, at its highest level, sensory integration stacks up and then becomes more complex. And the highest level of sensory integration ends up being in the temporal lobe. And that, that's where comprehension happens. And um, if we're paying attention to the outside world, um, mu is suppressed. And the frontocentral mimicking or mirroring, the mirror neurons are busy um, uh, seeing the outside world and relating to the outside world and mimicking it. And, uh, and if something in the outside world makes sense, and the left mirror neuron, ma, 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 pa, 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 da, 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 oh, mama and papa's two different people, you know, oh, that's the next portion of that, that mirror neuron loop is the central temporal well, central parietal temporal. And that portion of the loop ends up giving Wernicke area the input, the differentiation between mama and papa. Now I understand that, I comprehend that. So the, the basis of language is being laid down on the left. And on the right side, facial expressions, the basis of um, affective uh, perception and, um, and uh, uh, probably empathy uh, is being laid down. So all that network's happening. And um, at a young age, those networks are extremely malleable. Uh, and if you have a kid come in and you see gigantic mu, they're disconnected. That uh, mu is um, a, a disconnect from the outer world with the mirror neuron. If the mirror neuron's not engaged mu happens like closing your eyes makes alpha in the back of the head so you get this big resting state at c3 c4 of mu when you're not engaged with the outside world and and yeah you know, it's 
um, a normal variant neurologically. So all the neurologists are thinking, ah, oh, geez, they're talking about mu like there's something wrong with it. You know, How come we you know, don't talk enough about Mu? Is it simply because it's so hard to see or find? Is it all our fault? We're not uh, educated on it. We, we, what, when do we talk about Mu? I know the uh, the Thompsons talk about Mu all the time, but who else is talking about Mu except you? <laughs> well, anybody who looks at raw EEG ends up identifying Mu, and they they realize that it's a reflection of the mirror neuron system. And if you look at the QEG. Uh, Barry Sturman uh, said the owl eye pattern with eyes open when alpha is blocked and you see C3, C4, mu, that's an owl eye pattern. It's mu. Uh, um, mu. Barry didn't like the term mu. Uh, 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 Amri Gasto tried to dismiss SMR as just mu. Um, and, uh, Barry took it, uh, he was beat up with the term mu. So he doesn't like the term mu, he says owl eyes. And if the eyes are closed and you have alpha in the bottom, and, and that's a monkey face. So uh, I don't care what you call it, as long as when you see it, you recognize what it is. It's a disconnection. Now, it's not a tumor. It's not a stroke. It's not an ADM. There's no bleed. Um, so neurologically, when a neurologist sees mu, they go, eh, normal variant. Is it, uh, that doesn't mean anything. Well, it means something. There's a disconnect. Uh, but it doesn't mean anything is abnormal. It's a dysfunction, not an abnormality. And it's seen in 15% of the people that would be considered normal. And quite a few of those are athletes who consider it a positive dissociation. Uh, 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 go, go to a track meet and it's freaking chaos. There's they're throwing things over here. There are javelins flying by. There are people running in circles and round and round. And there's chaos. It's ordered chaos. Uh, but but you've got to basically shut all that chaos off to get into your zone for your hundred yard dash or your whatever hammer throw, uh, so that you don't throw it the wrong direction or whatever. I mean, you've, you've, you've got to get your head into your zone in order to optimally perform. You, and you, you can't be distracted by all this chaos. So um, there's a disproportionate amount of you in elite athletes. And again, their story to explain it is that it's a positive dissociation. I attribute that term to Santiago Brand and his uh, uh, work with elite athletes. And he, he kind of recognized that um, that for them, uh, that this wasn't a pathological uh, circumstance. This was actually something that they used in a, a positive way. So. Here we go again. You know, if you want to uh, negative for certain forms of early scholastics, but extremely positive for excelling in sports. And I'm going to add art, some of these fugue zones that incredible artists go yeah. Uh, into and I'm you know classical musicians obviously painters but also writers a lot of individuals they they write something and three days later it's like whoa did I do that did that really come out of me yeah so what are you training in what are you training out and why yeah. well luckily uh, the brain training can be guided by the individual's desires and what they want to learn and what they want to train. Um, the, 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 the clinician therapist coach uh, gives them uh, a sampler uh, that's had the back 
hooked out of all the chocolate. So they get to pick which ones they like. Uh, they don't have to have the maple unless they like it, you know. So um, they, they, they can choose their therapy. Uh, we, we give them the options. I know that this and this and this and this and this uh, can be a benefit to you. And you get to choose. There's the platter of, of options. Um, in, in some coaching circumstances, um, if it's coaching to be on a team, they may have a little bit more directive as to which one to choose. Um, but that's, again, the person's choice as to whether they want to go with what the team is saying or not. So, Can we wrap it, up um, our uh, going back to school show with sleep? Because we're talking about all these things that you should do, and then the kids don't sleep or the parents don't enforce sleep. It's like, uh, how much harder do you have to work if, you don't, if, you're, if you're getting two hours less sleep in a night? That's what kids are getting, right? How much harder is it for them to have to learn and then neurofeedback and all this other stuff? Because the parents have to understand that, first of all, right? Uh, what I would suggest is let, let's look at some data. This is the theta-beta ratio data. 1999, this is the clinical group. This is the normal comparison group, the mean and standard deviation. So you can see that the standard deviations didn't even touch. So they had a really powerful effect size, the ability to separate one curve from the other. Their effect size was approximately 1.8, which is a tremendously powerful effect size. 95 to 98% accurate, determining which group you were in by looking at the theta-beta ratio. But across time, the data has fallen apart. And now, the clinical group and the normal group means and standard deviations overlap so much that their effect size is 0.2 to 0.4, which is basically overlapping curves. You can't differentiate one from the other. What happened? Two hours less sleep per night. Two hours less sleep per night. Pay attention to sleep hygiene. Uh, get, get a sleep hygiene uh, handout from your local sleep lab. Uh, they'll be happy to give you one. Um, uh, make sure the room is dark, uh, that they don't have media in the room. Uh, if, uh, yeah, that the, uh, they, they go to bed and, and uh, they lay there and, and they're going to text with five friends. Yeah. Well, friend one sends out a text that wakes up four others. Yeah. And one of those is going to respond, uh, and that'll wake up five again. Uh, so this conversation goes on and eats up a few hours into the evening, and um, somebody will get up early and uh, respond to something that was last night when they didn't respond. Uh, all the emails come in in the morning, and your phone beeps. Um, you know, the media in the room is a mistake. Uh, it, it's not the only mistake, but it's a big mistake. Um, time of the last meal, how much exercise, uh, when. Um, you know, sleep hygiene is important. It's not just taking a shower before you go to bed. Yeah, I'd say all of that actually pales, absolutely pales to the, the major issue being interactive technology in the bedroom and, and close to bed. 
Um, you know, we, we, we talk about obviously the loss of time, <clears throat> but looping back to arousal, the level of arousal, the, the, the temporal um, expectancy in terms of texts and responses, uh, the blue light, melatonin production. I can literally talk for hours on this. If, if people take nothing from this show but this, going back to school, have everybody, I'm even, you know, suggesting for parents, you know, minimum of one hour before your head hits the pillow, all devices should be off. And if you have any type of a sleep issue, it should even be more conservative. You know, whether you have a little bit of protein or you're in your belly, how light, you know, the lights in your bed, all of this is absolute minutia in comparison um, to the, the effects of interactive screens um, and arousal um, before trying to go to sleep. My aura ring, sends my Apple Watch a message Turn to off. tell me that it's uh, uh, an hour and a half before bedtime and I should start to wind things down yeah. and yeah. Um, uh, prepare for sleep. And then it gives me another warning about 45 minutes before I'm supposed to actually be you know, in bed uh, that it's time to prepare. And, at, you know, that that winds things down now it also has the possibility of listening to uh, uh babbly brook and rain and uh, uh, a little uh, self-coaching for breathing patterns i mean there's all sorts of other things that are built into it to end up assisting with winding down yeah. and uh, these things are all very useful there's some fabulous technologies that can help with it you don't have to have the technologies but sometimes it ends up uh, being a good thing to have your ring tell your watch that you should get the hell off the internet and uh, uh, wind it down for the evening and then and then again, really wind you know, do, you, do you need the wind down routines if you turn things off sufficient time before because our biology is kind of designed to wind itself down if we give it the space to do so if we yeah. if we listen to it yeah it, it's yeah. a big debate you know tech against tech uh, versus tech helping us yeah. not need tech. <laughs> yeah. Well, the software packages that will change the the mix of red and and uh, blue on your screen. So yeah. in the morning it's more bright and blue, and in the evening it's tempered down and it's more reddish. And it doesn't it doesn't like look. Oh my God, they turned on the red now. You know, it's a subtlety, uh, but it's an important one. And uh, uh, so there's some technologies that can be used uh, to, to our benefit in this area. May so. I introduce a very, very classic piece of technology? <laughs> I'm going to get a bit humorous here. One of the things I recommend for individuals who just, uh, based on their jobs or a certain you know, stage that they find themselves in, in life, they're just working too long, too hard, and there really isn't a choice. And we have to acknowledge that. It's really easy for me to preach here, but uh, you know, I've, I've been through this as well. Um, I recommend, and with a wink at all the grandmothers out there, I call them granny glycoma glasses. I recommend that people go down uh, to a pharmacy that's close by a hospital where they actually perform eye surgeries and get those wonderful full band, uh, you know, no light gets in. They're always brown, orange, red glasses that do not allow certain uh, spectrums of light in. And if you need to work on your computer late at night for whatever reasons, get yourself a pair of 
granny glycoma glasses. And the reason why I say that is there are a lot of things that are sold online. They're not vetted. They, they claim they do this. They claim they do that. Uh, but go to a true medical source. Jay, real quick, if it was 20 years ago, why would I care about the theta-beta ratio? Because it was diagnostically significant. It would identify the ADD kid from the normal kid with a simple electrode on CZ, a couple of electrodes on the ears. You measure the ratio, boom, you've got your diagnosis. That was the effect size. Again, the ability to separate the diagnostic curve of AUDD from the diagnostic curve of normal kids. And you could see the, the effect size plummets. And it's now it's down into the random flip a coin range. And if it's flipping a coin, save me the putting on the electrodes at CZ and the ears and the goop. I'll just flip a coin in to give you your odds. I mean, it, there, there isn't the ability to differentiate anymore. And, uh, and it's not like the ADD group got great. I mean, if you couldn't differentiate because they got better, it would be a great deal. But what we've got is everybody's got the ADD look now uh, because two hours less sleep per night gets you a drowsy state. In you know, Rusty Turner and I were remarking now quite a while ago, um, uh, it's hard to find a 10-minute EEG with the eyes closed that doesn't fall asleep. You know, and, and vigilance modeling, which is a, a particular analysis technique used in Europe specifically, uh, does 10-minute eyes closed EEGs. The first five minutes, they expect you to stay fairly well awake. The second five minutes, they expect some light drowsing. Well, you, you, you get people falling asleep before the five-minute mark. And in a sleep lab, that's a failure of a multiple sleep latency test. Uh, you fell asleep so fast, you've got something wrong with your sleep at night. You've got to go get a sleep test. So uh, it's, we've got more referrals out for sleep testing um, uh, because uh, people qualify. You know, they... they they literally cannot stay awake. And in class, if you can't stay awake, you're going to look awfully inattentive. Dr. Marie Swingle, Jay Gunkelman, all the little kitties out there and parents having their kids go to the first day of school. We hope we've helped on this episode of the NeuroNoodle Neurofeedback Podcast. We thank you all for watching and listening. Adieu. <laughs> the NeuroNoodle podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you.